57 years ago, on September 18, 1966, 21-year-old Valerie Percy was found beaten and stabbed to death in her bed in her family's Kenilworth mansion. Her father, Charles Percy, was a Republican candidate for senator and a millionaire businessman. To this day, the murder remains one of Chicago area's most prominent unsolved crimes after 57 years. Glenn Wall is here with us to discuss the facts of the case, who the possible perpetrators may be, and why this case remains open uh, with the police keeping confidential its investigative materials. He is the author of the definitive book, Sympathy Vote and Zodiac Maniac, uh, and welcome to the show. Hi, Glenn. Thank you for joining me. Hi, Karen. Great to be here. Tell the, our listeners who may not remember Charles Percy a little bit about who he was. Um, in 1966, he was the uh, Senate candidate, uh, GOP Senate candidate, uh, that's U.S. Senate candidate, and he was the uh, current uh, then president of Bell & Howell Corporation. And his, uh, he had twin daughters, uh, correct? Yes. Okay, and they're 20... 20- Sharon and Valerie. Okay. And tell us a little bit about what happened to Valerie that night. Uh, Valerie had been um, working on her father's campaign that summer. She was a recent college graduate, and uh, she went to bed on a Saturday night. Um, Chuck, her father, got home about midnight that night. And, uh, you know, it's uh, just going to be a Sunday morning in Kenilworth, not a really uh, hopping place or time for uh, something unexpected like a murder. And someone broke into the house and beat and stabbed her to death at just about 5 o'clock in the morning. I think the call came into the police at about 5 after 5. And can you describe the wounds a little bit? Because I think it's important to know the brutality of what happened to her. Well, uh, it was about... uh, there was speculation for the first few days because uh, she had some uh, small triangular wounds to her head and um, the police were trying to, there was speculation in the newspaper about what could have caused the wounds. And uh, about three days later, they uh, found a bayonet in the lake about 800 feet down the beach in the direction of footprints that the first uh, police on the scene saw um, from the doorway where the killer ran out the door and uh, through the backyard and down to the beach. And the uh, these tri- small triangular wounds matched the hilt of the bayonet, and the hilt of the bayonet was, you know, designed for hand-to-hand combat uh, when uh, a soldier would be striking someone with, it, with that. Approximately uh, how yeah. old was this bayonet? Was it, like, from Civil War-era days? No, it was uh, World War II era. Okay, all right. And one gun. And in addition to those wounds to her head, she also was stabbed, is that right? Right. Um, Five times um, to the uh, torso. And uh, I, the police were, you know, all these years later, I spoke with Bob Lamb about that, and they were mystified by by the basically it was like what you would look would look like a cross three wounds straight down you know from the neck chest and uh you know underneath the, the uh, uh midway between the crotch and belly button and then two wounds to the right and left of the center wound in the chest is what you might call a cross pattern so you know as all of us who watch true crime you know we know in their crime is super violent that it speaks of kind of a personal 
vendetta or somebody who knew the victim or was angry was first of all was there anything removed from the premises was there any idea that this might have been some sort of burglary gone awry well um they thought that but um you know there was a, a similar somewhat similar case uh there was a uh victim in the 1990s who was a young woman who was murdered in in um, Glenview and they think that they now think that she was likely the victim of uh, a young man who lived there and moved to Los Angeles and was subsequently convicted of three uh, home invasion two home invasion murders and one home invasion attempted murder very much like the Percy's uh, attacked people who were in bed, young women. Um, so he didn't know any of these people beyond, you know, just knowing their name and where they lived and seeking them out as a victim. So I think that theory that, that there was a personal nature to it, um, you know, was definitely violent and there are violent uh, murders where people know each other and there's a vendetta or, or something like that, but you can't assume that. But, you know, I guess I should clarify for people who don't know the story, there was no evidence of sexual assault, correct? Exactly. And, and, there, and there was also no robbery. There was, no, there was nothing right. missing that we knew about. And her person, her right. belongings were there. So, right. so, so it, right. And that's, uh, that's uh, you know, um, they were a, a wealthy family living in a wealthy community. But on the other hand, the Percy's were not, um, you know, they were not ostentatious people. They were not... Uh, you know, they they were very low key um, in that regard, and so th- there was nothing missing. But of course, Valerie's mother interrupted the crime, so um, this person ran out of the house, and there was cash left at the scene. Uh, her purse was nearby, and it had a fairly substantial amount of cash in it. So the person did not seem to be motivated by uh, financial gain. And then, of course, another big. Uh, mystery about it is that uh, papers surfaced years later that showed the FBI suspected a neighbor of of the crime less than three months after uh, after the murder. And then you have in 1973, the same FBI Chicago office uh, um, planted a story in the Sun-Times that is very uh, seems very unlikely that this was somehow motivated by uh, you know uh, committed by jewel thieves, um, but none of that matches up with the actual facts of the case. Um, so that's uh, always been uh, you know we know that now because uh, Vincent and Sarah was the agent uh, who wrote his memoirs years later and admitted that they planted that story. Interesting. When we come back, I want to talk a little bit about who you think, uh, having studied this for years and years and years, uh, might be the perpetrator and um, why this case hasn't been solved and why the police aren't talking. You're listening to WGN and AM 720. I was frozen for a moment and he just stood there. He didn't say anything and shined his light in my face. And I screamed and I closed the door and I called to my husband that there was someone in Valerie's room. But that someone wasn't there much longer. As Mrs. Percy ran to call for help, the intruder fled, leaving a blood-soaked Valerie dying in her bed. I was fully awakened by her scream. Uh, It was a scream of terror. 
I was jolted by the alarm system which we have, which is a combination fire and uh, burglar alarm system. I dashed into my daughter's room, uh, and there she was lying in bed. I recall distinctly the seeing her right side uh, covered with blood. What you heard here was, uh, I believe that was the inquest, and that was Valerie Percy's stepmother and Charles Percy uh, giving their testimony. We're here with Glenn Wall. Glenn Wall is the author of the book Sympathy Vote, uh, which was the definitive book on the Valerie Percy murder. Uh, that I just wanted to mention uh, Glenn's book is available on Amazon. It's a very good book. It's an easy read. It's fascinating, uh, and it's been updated, so it's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a very good book. I wanted to talk, Glenn, a little bit about um, the idea of who you think was the perpetrator, given all you know about this crime. Well, at, at the time that I published the book, um, I, I just wanted to present as many different suspects and theories and tell the story of the campaign that was going on at the time. And uh, I wasn't trying to t- tie the murder to any other cases or, or whatnot, um, it was only after that that there was a lawsuit about three years later, I think it was in 2016, It was very odd. A uh, lawyer who grew up in Kenilworth um, requested to see the old files, which were about 50 years old at that time. And uh, the uh, village of Kenilworth and the police department there were the defendants, and they were representing all of the original investigative uh, you know, the state's attorney's office, Chicago police, uh, the medical examiner's office, county medical examiner, and all these kinds of things. And they were, they were, uh, representing them. And it was just very strange because the, they were super secretive about these old files, you know, where many old files in other cases have been, been released before. And they, you know, the, the Chicago media seemed to be skeptical for good reason about why this level of secrecy was there on such an old case. And, um, you know, that sort of led, you know, I looked back at, at that and he eventually filed a suit um, to see the, uh, under the Freedom of Information Act to see the files and was that suit was rejected and they were saying that the case was still open and it was active, which seemed to be, uh, you know, uh, hard to believe. And here we are six years or so later and nothing has, has come of it. There hasn't been a new, uh, suspect named since the early seventies. And, um, I looked, looked and tried to find, you know, what did it cost Kenilworth to fight that suit? And it, I, I can't find anything in their annual report. In fact, it seems like there may have been a, a lie there told, uh, there was a 300,000 plus dollar amount. Uh, transferred from the what they said was the police pension fund, you know. But there's no there's no rec- record of what that cost, and it must have cost a substantial amount of money. So, you know, and and local government usually doesn't seem to be that secretive. And so, given the fact that in 1973 the FBI planted the story that doesn't make any sense, where we have the 1966 reports that said that they suspected that it was uh, the uh, son, one of the sons of uh, one of the person's neighbors, this guy, William Thorson. 
So before we before we go to William Thorison, who is really the main suspect, I think here, if we can all agree on it. Mm-hmm. But you know, I, I I guess I have seen and I've, I've, well, I've listened to podcasts where these these mm-hmm. uh, amateur sleuths, sometimes very young people with no qualifications, mm-hmm. will investigate or reinvestigate uh, crimes and talk to people who haven't been spoken to before or who didn't talk before, and they can actually mm-hmm. solve crimes or they can at least point mm-hmm. the police in the right direction with that kind of trending going on, you would think that the Kenilworth police would be welcoming to open the doors and maybe there's a retired investigator who wants to dedicate time to looking into this. And and we're getting kind of late in the game here because 57 mm-hmm. years ago, a lot of people have died who, um, you know, were involved in the investigation, who might have been suspects. And I, I, if anyone from the Kenilworth police are listening, I would really like to know why this has not been open to the public. Um, and I'm sure you would too, Glenn. Well, I, I, I took a, some, a theory based on some evidence to them, and we had a very good relationship. Um, and then it, it went very cold after that immediately. And I think that they realized that, um, you know, uh, the FBI has uh, kind of hung out the local people to, uh, you know, into the wind, which is not a, unusual. Um but uh, what a lot of people don't know is is a week after, um, and I didn't know this when writing the book, the first book, but it's in the second book, a week after Valerie was murdered, there was a home invasion in uh, out just outside of Cincinnati in another neighborhood that was not known for major crimes. It was a safe place to live, prosperous. And uh, three members of a family who ironically are buried just outside of Chicago, they were named Bricka. And they were brutally murdered in a home invasion. Another one doesn't make any sense. There was, you know, this was not a house where you would find a lot of money. I think cash was left behind. And um, there was subsequently a book in recent years published about that. But Robert Lamb, who was the lead investigator on the Percy case, traveled to Cincinnati to, inter- you know, to to uh, have a meeting with the police there, and they published a news story that said where Lamb said uh, whoever murdered the murdered Valerie, murdered the Brickas. Well, now that there's been a book published on that, we know that an off-duty policeman saw a suspect, or actually talked to a suspect who was watching the Brickas' house the night before the murder. Well, we know there was a man seen watching the Percy's house the night before the murder. It was a Northwestern student who was a witness to that. And there's reason to, you know, to wonder, well, why are they being so secretive? about these police files. Well, the police reports I've found on a lot of these old cases can be very accurate, and the witnesses were very good. Um, the uh, witness to the Bricka, who saw the, talked to the guy who was watching the Bricka's house, said that he spoke English in an unusually, or something unusually perfect about the diction or something. Well, we know Thorson had struggled mightily with stuttering, and his wife had given him uh, speech therapy. We know that there was a red, an unidentified red sports car linked by Illinois State Police to the person murder that was seen fleeing an attempted burglary at a, a home in in Winnetka prior to the person murder. The suspect there was trying to steal guns. We know Thorson was a gun fanatic and he was a habitual criminal and he owned a red Ferrari. A Ferrari was a red, it was a rare car back in those days. Still is relatively rare. We know that uh, witness to the Brickham murders uh, at 5.30 in the morning around the time that they, that, that family was murdered 
saw an unidentified red sports car parked in a, in a bowling alley parking lot at 5.30 in the morning, uh, half a block from the Brickett's home. They called it a, quote, fancy red sports car, unquote. So that, you know, you sort of see why Robert Lamb said whoever murdered Valerie murdered the Brickett's. Um, there also seem to be, uh, there are news stories where police talk about the weapon the knife that was used in the Brickett's murders, and it sounds like a fishy story. And we know that the bayonet in the Percy case was only found three days before the, the Brickett's were murdered, and the Percy case was very much a national news story. So police in uh, investigating the Brickett case would have been aware of the Percy case and that a bayonet had been found, and you know they had information regarding the wounds in their case, so there seems to be, they were unusually secretive about the wounds and about the knife that was involved. And then we know six weeks after the Brickers were murdered, somebody went into a house in Florida and uh, murdered three members of a family down there. And then once again, in a neighborhood that was very safe, uh, you know, there was nothing uh, taken of any value from that house. Um, so Glenn, you, like can we can we hold for one second? Yes. I'm going to have to take a break, but can you stay on for one more segment? Because I still sure. want to get to Thornson and want to talk a little bit about who he was and how his what his connections were with Chicago. Okay. We're talking to Glenn Wall, author of Sympathy Vote, which is available on Amazon. And then we're going to take your legal questions. Um, actually, probably right around. A quarter to five. You're listening to WGN. Welcome back to the Karen Conti Show. I'm talking with Glenn Wall. He's the author of several books. Uh, Sympathy Vote is the one we're talking about, available on Amazon. But he also wrote a book called Zodiac Maniac, which we're going to discuss in a little bit. Glenn, we got a bunch of things to talk about, but I want to talk and focus on, we're talking about the Valerie Percy murder, which happened 57 mm-hmm. years ago in Kenilworth. And it's a cold case, one of the Chicago area's coldest cases, and the, sh- the police are still keeping all of their investigation private and and we don't know what's going on other than they say it's still an open investigation so you you believe there's a man named William Thorson who youth believe was the perpetrator and we talked a little bit about he loved guns he stockpiled guns similar to the bayonet that was found in the lake he had a red sports car he had a history of violence can you talk a little bit about who Thorson was just give me kind of the bullet points on who he was and why you think he was the perpetrator of this crime well you mentioned the bayonet and um the reason why the fbi suspected him of the person murder is because uh less than three months after uh valerie was murdered a, a port authority police in um new york uh arrested his wife when she was trying to ship him a shipment of military weaponry that included three bayonets identical to the one that was found near Percy's house. Um, he was a uh, res- he had been a resident and grew up in Kenilworth. His family was very wealthy. His father had made a fortune in, uh, during World War II as a uh, distributor of uh, steel. Had a company in Chicago uh, made the family very wealthy. He had one brother and I had not been told about him in uh, context of the Percy murder. I just uh, had a police source that uh, was in Kenilworth at the time. Uh, and the year, the summer before Valerie was murdered, uh, William was back living at home with his wife and son and causing all kinds of problems 
at the house, and um, I was able to get his uh, police report and see that basically he and his brother were trying to uh, intimidate their parents or um, extort uh, money from them, uh, trust funds and things like this, and all through the summer of 1965. So they were tying up the police department several times a week, and before the summer was out, had destroyed most of the family home there. The parents couldn't live there anymore. They had to hire a security guard to try and watch it, but so much of the, the house had been damaged by the end of the summer, and then his brother mysteriously was found dead, shot uh, dead in a car in Lake Forest uh, in subsequent uh, court case with his wife. Uh, it is presumed that William murdered three, including his brother, and um, we know that he was a suspect in Valerie's murder, and we know he was a suspect in a brutal dismemberment murder in Chicago in 1957, a young woman named uh, Judith May Anderson. So he also, oh, oh, uh, well, he, we also know that he was uh, wanted in um, uh, for a, a beating of a woman in Las Vegas. He broke his nose and tried to bribe the police. That was in 1967. We know that he assaulted a waiter in Arizona, may have been that year or a year before, breaking the man's arm. He fled to California. And uh, so he didn't serve any jail time except for when he was jailed initially in um, Arizona for that. We know he was wanted for setting off bombs outside a radio station in 1964. Well, this, in guy, this guy's like an all-purpose criminal. He, he doesn't just right. stick to and, one and thing. And He's, so the, the, yeah. re- the reason that there's so much with these cases like Valerie, there's so much secrecy and apparently false stories planted is just what is known and documented about him would be highly embarrassing to you know uh you know anybody who looks at the, the the judicial system at that time but but you again know, but but there's such a there was such a hue and cry to to solve this this murder you think that would have outweighed whatever embarrassment but let's 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 go to well, talk a little right, bit about- but, but i was i was able to go go back to to bob lamb who who worked for the state police and i found you know these uh, papers surfaced that the fbi suspected him just months later of the murder, and I said, well, did the FBI ever come to you? I know he, he knew he had friends of the FBI in Chicago, and, and they never said anything. And that is classic. Uh, you know, we know that, uh, you know, the, the feds just let local police know what they want them to know, and, and the rest of the time they have their own agenda. So just I just want to ask another side note is how Thorinson, the this suspect, died. Can you just briefly tell us how he died? And then I'm going to talk a little bit about the Zodiac Killer and how you're tying some things together right. here. Uh, well, when I wrote both of my books, I wrote about his death based upon testimony at his wife's uh, trial in which she was acquitted for shooting him. Okay, and, so wait, so wait, the, his and, wife shot him and killed him. Well, that's what that's what the official story was in her book and in her court trial. And I felt that, you know, I I said that I felt like her story doesn't make sense. I don't know where the truth begins and the the lies end. But uh, it wasn't until after I'd finished both of my books that I actually read the newspaper coverage of the shooting at the time it happened. And when I read the newspaper coverage of the shooting at the time it happened, 
you know, you can get out a, a, a paper and pen and write a list of why you why this whole story sounds like it was planted and didn't really happen, because she she supposedly shot him in a in a residential area in Fresno, California, at eight o'clock in the morning during the summer you know, on a block of, of you know closely situated homes. Nobody heard any gunshots. She supposedly shot him with a thirty-eight. That doesn't make sense. Well, who? Oh, just numerous, who? But we're really running out of time. But who do you think shot him then? Uh, I think that he gave himself away in one of his zodiac letters, and the. You know, we know that we know that the U.S. government shot Bonnie and Clyde or representatives of the U.S. government shot Bonnie and Clyde. We know they shot Dillinger in Chicago. I think what happens is they found out that he was Zodiac and that he murdered scores of people. I mean, I'm talking far more than the 47 I've got in my second book. And this was too embarrassing, uh, especially considering one of these people was at the was the child of a sitting U.S. senator who so, would be a very powerful person. I just want to make clear, because I think we skipped something here. You think mm-hmm. that Thorson, the guy that you think killed Valerie Percy and committed all yeah. these other crimes over uh, different ge- ge- geographic areas and different times, mm-hmm. right. that he was the Zodiac killer. He was, in fact, the person that they've right. never pinned down to be the Zodiac killer. And you know what we're going to right. need to do? We're going to need to come back and talk about why you think Thorison was, in fact, the Zodiac killer. <clears throat> and in your book, A Zodiac Maniac, and, and listeners should should buy it, there's all kinds of pictures and uh, composite sketches that really do resemble Thorison and that might lead to this conclusion as well. And Glenn, I'm sorry to cut you off, but I have to take a break here. Thank you so much for joining us. It's Glenn Wall. He is the author of Sympathy Vote about the Valerie Percy murder, available on Amazon and, of course, Zodiac Maniac.